You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next and, in fact, final instalment of the Trowers and Hamlins Night Frank podcast series, uh, at least for now. Today, we're going to be talking about some myths in the UK commercial real estate market and particularly those myths which we see as confusing our Gulf clients again and again. My name is Nick Green, and I'm a corporate and real estate capital markets partner based in the Dubai office, focusing on assisting Gulf clients looking to invest back into the UK and wider Europe. To help me bust today's myths, I have with me today two experts in the field, independent real estate consultant and seasoned UK investor from the Gulf, Basam Kameshki, formerly of Iddar Bank, and Head of London Commercial Research at Knight Frank, Faisal Durrani. Thank you, gentlemen, both for joining today. Given the number of myths out there, uh, we've decided to split this podcast into two parts, part one and part two. Uh, Let's start, perhaps, uh, if we can, with a quick state of the nation from Faisal as our research champion, and then we can move on to the first of our three myths for this episode. Well, thanks very much uh, for the introduction, Nick. So in terms of in terms of where we stand for London's office market, if we start with um, with leasing, Q3 has been the weakest on record for London. Um, and our data series goes back 30 years. Um, and we saw just over a million square feet of office space let um, in the third quarter. This, this figure perhaps isn't very surprising, given that businesses have, for the most part, paused relocation and expansion decisions in the wake of the pandemic, um, and, and they are currently reassessing their occupational strategies with a view to allowing greater remote working going forward. It's also perhaps important to, to stress that London isn't alone in this position. Uh, we've seen cities such as Paris, Sydney um, and New York also experience their weakest quarters on record um, in either Q2 or Q3 because of the pandemic. When it comes to investment, the second quarter of the year was the second weakest on record. We saw just under £600 million of turnover, and we attribute that largely to the UK's first lockdown. However, once the lockdown restrictions started to be eased um, in the summer, we saw a rapid ramp up in demand and activity. And to put that into perspective, during Q2, we, as I say, we had £595 million of investment turnover. But during the month of July alone, we had ni- over £960 million of investment turnover. And if we fast forward to the fourth quarter, the first eight days of um, Q4 saw uh, £1.2 billion of investment activity in London's office market. Um, so clearly, investors taking a much longer term view on life um, and looking forward to our, to a post-COVID um, world. And the longer the pandemic um, continues to erode global economic growth, um, the more attractive London becomes for global investors and 
assumes its position once again as a as a global safe haven. But obviously, there's a number of factors that are weighing on everybody's minds, uh, ranging from future demand for offices, uh, the health of the flexible office market, the amount of tenant release space um, coming into the market, and um, the the impact of other considerations such as environmental, social, and governance issues on occupational demand. Great. Thanks very much, Faisal. Some really interesting points there to pick up on uh, as we go along. But I think let's dive right into our myths now and kick off uh, perhaps with one of the most pervasive myths, which I'm constantly hearing about in the market at the moment. And that being that huge structural changes in the market are happening overnight and all due to COVID-19. What do you both think about that? And perhaps uh, let's start with what you're seeing uh, in, the, in the data, Faisal. So in terms of, of structural changes, I think COVID-19 has accelerated trends that were already in train um, prior prior to the pandemic. One, one thing is clear in that the definition, purpose and function of an office is likely to have been altered permanently. Uh, offices are unlikely to be email factories going forward, but they will behave more as showrooms for businesses to showcase themselves to future talent and indeed potential clients. And in terms of you know the 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 future of an office as as a place to work, I think if if COVID nineteen has taught us anything, you know we've we've all enjoyed working from home, but that honeymoon period ended ended a long time ago. As I'm sure many people listening to this podcast can attest to having issues with, with broadband connections, calls dropping, teams meetings seizing up, um, and there simply isn't a replacement for face-to-face interaction. And at the, at the other end of the spectrum, if you're thinking about the next generation of the workforce, there simply isn't a replacement to face-to-face um, onboarding of, of new staff to get them immersed in a company's culture. Um, and so those, those issues will remain. And I guess just as a, as a final point from me on this, uh, one of the things we believe that will transcend the pandemic is the war for talent. Heading into the pandemic, one of the biggest challenges for businesses was around the ability to attract and retain staff. And in fact, during our 2020 landlord and investor survey, where we managed to canvas 10% of London's office market, so landlords and investors representing about 25 million square feet, the biggest piece of feedback from businesses to landlords and investors was the issue around attracting and retaining staff. And in a market like London, where we have been supply starved for such a long period of time, and that's reflected in the fact that more than half of everything under construction is already pre-let, there was already an increased focus on best-in-class grade A office space as businesses are securing the best offices they can as a way to mitigate around issues in attracting and retaining staff. So going forward, we feel that you know that there will be a renewed focus on the very best offices for those reasons. Interesting stuff. So uh, do you think that going forwards will be in a situation whereby if your company or your tenant doesn't have uh, the absolute best in class office, then you'll struggle to attract and retain talent? 
yes, definitely. That that is that is going to be an issue. Um, and you know, hand in hand with that, and we can we can come on to this later. Are other softer considerations that that are rapidly rising up boardroom agendas around environmental, social, and governance issues. I mean, we know that the next generation of the workforce is increasingly green conscious and, and they assess businesses um, on their green credentials and they assess uh, businesses' green credentials on, on the space they occupy. Uh, a really good example are, are some of the oil giants, um, your, your Saudi Aramcos, your Shells, your BPs of this world, all declaring their, their desire to become carbon neutral by 2050. Um, how they go about achieving that is is yet to be made clear, but it's sending out a very strong signal to the next generation of workers in that these businesses are greening their their ethos, which makes them more attractive places to work, um, and they are using using um, ESG, if you like, as as a tool to to help combat the the war for talent. Interesting. Um, I think we'll we'll come on to discuss ESG themes uh, in, in a moment or so. But just for the moment, I'd like to to stick with the perhaps the the restructuring of the office or the the changes to the office that we're we're all expecting. The much heralded death of the office, of course, that we've heard um, a lot about. Um, and I don't think anyone on this podcast particularly thinks that's um, uh, realistic or not. But uh, I'd be interested, Basam. To, to hear what your thoughts are on on the office and the, the future of the office, perhaps in the immediate um, aftermath of uh, the pandemic, but but really over the next few years as well. I couldn't agree more with Faisal Nick about the honeymoon period is over. I mean, when we were forced to 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 work at home under the lockdown, we we didn't mind that we could lose our mobile signal, our Wi-Fi. Our children would be playing in the background, but let's face it, the, the pandemic or COVID-19 is not staying forever. We will have to accept the fact that we will have to come back to the office and work normally. However, the $1 million question is, will the office layout would be exactly the same or big time different than how it looked like before the pandemic? In my personal opinion, Offices will look the same. However, utilization of the office in terms of number of hours we're going to spend in the office will not be as before. Employees will have the option to work from home on those days where they had to do or when they have to do some administration work. But what I'm trying to say here, Nick, is that we cannot live without coming to the real office because it's going to change people behavior into more distance working, which is not healthy in my personal opinion. Great. And in terms of the the sort of the relocation of offices or the, the changing uh, location potentially of offices, one trend that we, we have seen talked about in the market at least is the, the shift to a hub and spoke model from the central headquarters model where all of the staff are based. Faisal, I'm not sure if you've got any data on that or, or any thoughts uh, on, on, on that particular uh, area. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, when you think about a, a city like London, the, it's been developed in such a way to funnel in people from surrounding commuter towns and, and villages. 
Um, and, you know, beyond the obvious benefits of locating in a city like London, uh, such as the, the economic agglomeration effects, Lon- London also is, is the world's most innovative city. Um, and we've recently carried out a piece of research under our um, active capital publication that looks at the reasons uh, why London is the world's number one city for innovation um and and you can have a look at that on our website but you know there there has been undoubtedly a lot of talk um since the start of the pandemic um of of businesses reducing their their footprints in major major cities and and opting for a more hub and spoke model which obviously brings uh, the added benefits of reduced costs because of lower out of town rents um, however, for, for London, we simply haven't seen that materialize just yet. And th- there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, first of all, as, as I say, the way the city is set up is in, it's set up in a way to funnel people into town rather than out of town. So it would um, inadvertently make it harder for people to get to work if businesses were to opt for a, a more hub and spoke business model. And in addition to that, being located in central London offers certain lifestyle benefits um, that many commuter towns and villages um, around London simply cannot replicate. Um, And in addition to that, the quality and quantum of office space available outside of the the city center uh, is is often uh, unable to match what's what's available in town um, and so whilst businesses have talked about it we've seen very little in the way of, of commitments to that effect that's not to say it isn't a trend elsewhere in the world um, our colleagues in the states have been telling us um, that they've seen uh, seen that happen in New York um, so in Manhattan for instance businesses have reduced their footprints by uh, some businesses, I should say, have reduced their footprints by anywhere between three and 30,000 square feet um, and have instead opted to take a similar amount of space in, in New Jersey. However, that does come with the caveat uh, that this has happened in the past as well and is just a cycle repeating itself. The added benefit of, of locating in, in a city hasn't been eroded uh, by COVID-19. What's probably worth mentioning is that um, when it comes to London, the average commute time is about 73 minutes each way. Um, So that gives you an indication of how far people commute in from. Um, And historically, people have opted to live near train stations that allow them relatively easy and quick access into London. However, what may happen as a result of the pandemic and greater flexibility around remote working is people may choose to live um, in locations based on the amenities available in that area rather than how quickly they can get into central London. Um, and what that might mean is that once you know people do get into town, they will want to try and minimize their secondary commute as much as possible, which suggests that perhaps at least for a time, whilst we work through COVID-19, um, that there might be increased um, demand for office space in and around mainline commuter stations with people willing to, uh, you know, or, or opting rather to, to walk or cycle to work for a further five or 10 minutes rather than getting onto public transport. Interesting. And I, I, I suppose that that means that um, you know, we'll have to look at what is actually available in the development pipeline around mainline stations because things don't get built quickly, let's face it. So that could be certainly an interesting thing for us to, to look at. Whilst we're talking about London and the primacy of, of London, which we, which we have done so far, 
Um, I think we can move on to myth two, which is one of my least favourite, but sadly most often heard over the last four years or so. The myth is Brexit will have a devastating impact on the UK market and foreign direct investment into the UK. Perhaps on this one, uh, Basam, we can start with you to, to get a Gulf investor's perspective on London and its place uh, within the, the wider uh, capitals around Europe. You know, Nick, they say UK is a UK, it's not going anywhere. For those who identify the Brexit as a risk, definitely a Brexit is a risk. But for those sophisticated investors, I would advise to underwrite the deal sincerely when it comes to Brexit risk, not to look at the financial returns. A classical example is buying a car distribution center for a for a car manufacturer somewhere in the port cities in the UK. So an investor would investigate whether this distribution center would distribute only to the UK or would depend on trading and exporting to other European countries where we know the, 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 the trade agreement hasn't been agreed yet between the UK and the European Union. For, yes, what I'm trying to see here is a Brexit is a risk and it's been frustrating that we have been speculating so many scenarios since 2016 where it was triggered. However, if we're going to just wait for a decision to be made and God knows how long is that going to take my advice to investors, put your heads down for those who are already investing in the UK, invest into more UK exposed properties and not anything else. Yes, I mean, it's a, that's, a very, that's a very interesting point. And I think uh, really um, what I've been seeing when I've been talking to uh, investors here in the, the region um, is that um, London will remain a draw post Brexit. Obviously, that's happening at uh, uh, the, the end of, of this year. Uh, we still don't know whether there'll be a, a deal or no deal, but expecting some clarity on that soon. But I think uh, in terms of the UK's draw, um, yeah. do, do you think that the UK's main draw is London? Or do you think, as you say, that the regional big six, for example, are as big a draw for Gulf investors and will remain a big draw uh, post-Brexit for those investors? So there are two parts to this, Nick. Uh, part number one, investors invest in the UK, not because of London. Investors invest in the UK mainly for London, but it's because London being perceived as a safe haven. And I'm sure we're going to talk about it in the second part of this podcast. Uh, investing in London or outside of London, as we said earlier, to, into the big six or the big 10 cities, it will all come down to the investor's risk appetite and investment criteria. So if investors are looking for a proper capital appreciation, a premium to their exit values, London would be the main city to invest in. However, if investors are looking for the higher yields, at the beginning of the growth curves, so uh, of a certain asset class, this the, the the answer would be get outside of London, invest into the stable big six cities, that are like Birmingham, Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, Glasgow, and Edinburgh. So yes, so if I if we're gonna recap here for a couple of seconds, is that uh, London in the investors' language is an IRR game and capital appreciation, but 
but the regional cities would fit more for those investors who are looking for higher yields and cap- uh, plus the capital gain. We have seen major occupiers redistributing themselves all over the regional six. For example, HSBC have been expanding their back office in Birmingham. Uh, Burberry and KPMG have their own headquarters down in Leeds. Some major occupiers such as BBC and Granata TV have well-established corporate headquarters in Manchester, and there are many other examples for those regional cities. Okay, great. But but you think that overall, uh, London and the UK will remain a significant draw for Gulf investors going forwards when they uh, look around the European market. Obviously, we'll, the, the US is completely different, but um, traditionally, um, in my experience, uh, Gulf investors have looked to the UK first before looking to other markets within Europe. And do you think that that will remain the case going forwards, even even though Brexit is is about to to, to finalise? Oh yes, definitely, Nick. I mean, I'll repeat myself one more time: <laughs> the UK is the UK, and it's it's not going anywhere. Gulf investors are literally committed, both sentimentally speaking and business-wise, to, to, to be part of the UK, whether putting their kids in school, whether investing in real estate. I don't see, personally, investors are going anywhere, even if a Brexit was a trigger, whether there is deal or no deal with the European Union. Uh, the, 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 the offer that the UK market gives to, provides to the investors, beside being generally known as a safe haven, the, the, the UK market is well-regulated, it has a very good legal jurisdiction system that protects capital, not to mention the increased foreign direct investment in the past years have made London or the UK market highly liquid for investment exits. All these add as main pillars of investment decision making into the UK. Fantastic. Well, that's, that's great news for all of us who are interested in the, the UK market and its continued success. So great to hear. Now uh, we can move on to our third and final myth, bringing back to our favourite um, buzzword that we were talking about earlier, the myth, frivolous or increasingly important, and why have Gulf investors not really been taken by it up till now? Um, on this one, maybe let's start with uh, your views on ESG and, and take up so far, Faisal. Yeah, so on um, on the issue of, of ESG, Nick, I think a good place to start would be with a with a st- solid statistic. Um, we we are actually aware that um, about sixty four percent of all office stock in London was completed prior to the year two thousand. Um, obviously, refurbishments have taken place over the last twenty years or so, but there is a lot of brown stock um, out there, if you like. Um, And as I said earlier, businesses are increasingly greening their ethos, um, which uh, which often translates into uh, increased appetite for buildings that tick boxes for green and wellness credentials. Um, And one of I guess one of the biggest opportunities or one of the biggest risks in the market is what happens to all of this brown stock out there. We believe that if these assets are not greenified um, in some way or changed such that the perception is, isn't that they cause environmental harm of some form, um, occupiers are likely to shy away from them. 
um, and in turn, so will investors as the long-term letability and saleability prospects start to diminish. Um, and these assets, you know, face a face a long road to obsolescence or be forced down a change of use route. However, herein also lies one of the greatest opportunities because by acquiring these buildings and greenifying them in some way, there are rental premiums to be had, at least for the time being. And given the green agenda is being pushed um, at, at a government level where the UK government uh, has has declared its intention to make the country carbon neutral by 2050. There's also a requirement for all commercial buildings in England and Wales to meet new minimum energy efficiency standards by 2030. Um, we are seeing the government pushing quite hard in this direction and, and the market needs to respond because we are seeing occupiers already looking for for greener assets Um, and you've got various funds um, around the world um, already also declaring their their esg agendas Um, we've had blackstone for example at the end of last month declare that where they are in control of the energy use of an asset or business that they've acquired they will aim to reduce the carbon footprint of that asset or business by 15 percent within three years of acquiring it um, so this is this is definitely a, a big issue, um, and it is uh, it is going to be very interesting to see how um, investors from around the world respond to this issue that is that is becoming uh, arguably the critical uh, component for success um, in London's market. Excellent. And you mentioned earlier that uh, you think it's going to be incredibly important for the next generation of workers and, and talent retention. Can you just expand a little bit more on that? Yes, absolutely. Um, as, as I said, the one issue that we believe will transcend the pandemic and one that isn't going away anytime soon is the global war for talent. Uh, businesses are struggling to attract and retain the right staff. And we know that the next generation of workers are extremely green conscious They're assessing businesses on their green credentials. They're assessing businesses on the space they occupy and looking at the green credentials of the offices that businesses businesses use. Um, That isn't obviously the the deciding factor on whether or not whether or not people take up employment with a specific company, but it is certainly becoming a key consideration. And and as I said, um, if businesses continue to green uh, their agendas at the rate they are at the moment, it is quite likely that they will start to avoid uh, buildings that are perceived to be um, unfriendly to the environment in some way. And so these buildings are likely to become obsolete over time if they aren't greenified. Um, and then we're then faced with the with a sort of double whammy prospect, if you like, of the building becoming unlettable and also unsaleable simply because uh, it isn't green enough. Worrying times for some investors, I guess. And Basan, do you have a view on why Gulf investors traditionally haven't looked particularly at the the uh, greenness, if I can say it that way, of uh, a building? And do you think uh, that trend is now beginning to play through their minds uh, a little more now that uh, there's much more noise in the press, certainly in the UK, about it and the agendas that uh, are beginning to, to feed through, the war for talent uh, uh, that uh, Faisal just mentioned? Do you think you know the message is being received out here too? 
Yes, Nick. So the, the concept of a green building have been widely known here in the Gulf only the, in the past few years. Uh, it's basically a new concept to all of us here. However, investors have to realize that adapting a green building will put a premium into your investment in the UK. And I repeat myself, when underwriting a deal, you should underwrite it sincerely. If an investor from the Gulf or anywhere else is buying a brown building, would have always to accommodate in the underwriting the allowance for greenifying the building into a greener, if that makes sense language-wise, in order to be able to sell it for a premium. Otherwise, you're going to be off-trend and this definitely would draw a negative impact on your valuation upon exit. Okay, thanks. And uh, a lot of my experience with uh, Gulf investors suggests that certainly um, maybe uh, a short while ago, nine, ten years ago, really they, they weren't keen on much capex spending on, on buildings at all. They wanted to, to, uh, to, to buy a building, um, exit it three, four, five years later, increase capital values, etc., earn a nice yield in, in the meantime, but they weren't particularly keen, well, this is a broad generalization, on, on doing too much to the building or spending too much on it. So uh, do you think that mindset is also shifting, Bassam? Do you think investors are now realizing that, that those days uh, are to a certain extent gone and there is a, a fundamental shift in the market, uh, whether it's ESG or the, the, the repurposing of offices that we briefly talked about as well. Do, do you think that's feeding through? Absolutely, Nick. So the, the, the honeymoon period where investors have been used and spoiled actually on some stable yielding deals are gone with increased volume of foreign direct investments from the UK, US and even the Far East towards the UK market have drawn negative impact on the net initial yields. So the, the classic yields that the GCC investors have spoiled themselves with are not there anymore. Number one. Number two, what is the solution? The solution is definitely to add value to certain properties in order to increase the, 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 the valuation of a property, either by applying ESG fundamentals into it, as we said earlier, greenify it, or even repurpose it. So what I, I would advise investors is to get out of the comfort zone of investing into core and core plus investments because the yields for these two asset classes is way lower than what they used to be. Get into more value-added strategies, whether repurposing or, as we said earlier, adding value, not only by underwriting your deal sincerely, but by working with the right technical partner who would apply a smart asset management plan in order to get the required return by those GCC investors. Fantastic. I think we could probably talk about this one all day, but much as I'm loath to leave it there, I realise time is against us on this one, and I think we'll have to wind up part one of this podcast at this point. Thank you both very much, Bassam and Faisal, for your thoughts on these myths, and I look forward to talking to you both again in part two. Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you, Nick. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.